Okay, there we go. Now I'm on. Thank you. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be looking at just a really small, a couple of phrases today. This could really, I don't know why I, I didn't want to scare you, so I didn't call this part three for the last couple of weeks, but this could really be part three of this, of this uh, text from verse 25 on to the end of the chapter, but we're not going to call it that. We're going to look at how we're to worship God today. Such a, an absolutely vital doctrine and teaching of the Bible that's clear and a little bit frightening. As I've said the last few weeks, we're not here to scare you, but sometimes I don't think we're frightened enough of the holiness of God. So we're going to talk about that again this morning. I'm going, to, I'm going to go back and begin, let's see, in verse 25, just to give us the near context. And so uh, let's stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. So let us hear now the Word of the Lord, Hebrews 12, 25, and again we'll be dealing with 28b and 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now there's that command. Don't refuse him who is speaking. So the Word of God is speaking to us every time we read it. And so let's not refuse the God who's speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken. Remember, that's the end of time on the last day. The removal of all things that are being shaken. That is what has been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So remember, we've come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Our feet are planted on firm on solid ground, and he says that here. So we go on. Yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That, that, that is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be made, made shaken may remain. Therefore, since this is true, now here's where we are today. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That was last week. Okay, now here's this week. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessings to this reading of it. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I simply pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer, transform us now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think I started last week with the, uh, the Lord of the Rings, as I have probably too many times. But I, I love that story, but I also love C.S. Lewis. And many of you love Lewis and know The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, one of my one of my favorite books as well, and read it many times, read it to my children. But I love the scene where Lucy, one of the main characters, the Pavinzi family, she asks Mr. Beaver about the lion Aslan, who is, of course, the God figure, the Christ figure. She says this, she said, is he quite safe? I would do it in my British accent, but I'll resist doing that now because I hear it in that accent, right? Is he quite safe? You know, I hear it that way, and I think, yeah, I like that. I wish I could talk that way, but I, alas, I don't. But is he quite safe? And I love Mr. Beaver's answer. He says, safe? He's incredulous. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And we would say, of course he ain't safe, right? <laughs> he's not safe. He's the king. And I love that phrase because we serve a God, and we've come to a text that that shines a spotlight on the fact that the God we worship, he's not safe. And yet we've domesticated him. We? We've made him safe. We've made him this kind of 
you know, you've heard me say this a lot, this kind of precious moments religion, you know, this sort of, you know, got the cute little angels and, you know, we go and we kind of get, as one, I heard one pastor put it a long time ago, we get our spiritual Snickers bar and it kind of gets us, gives us energy through the week. And that's what God does for us. And okay, I get that, but that's not the God we read about here the God of the mountain that shook the mountain, that came down and His holiness and righteousness shook the mountain and who will yet once more shake everything that's been made. He's not safe, as Mr. Beaver said. And that's the point. And Lewis understood that. And in that children's story, he's communicating that, no, he's not safe, but he's good. So we fear God in a reverential fear, but we don't fear Him with a slavish fear like a slave because He's good. He's sovereign, He's Lord, He's righteous, He's holy, He's all-powerful, He's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresence, omnipresent, but He's good. He's all those things and He's good. And so we worship Him, we come to Him, and so we come to Him with fear and trembling, right? Or we should. And yet, we need this sermon this morning because I don't think we do. As I said in my Lord of the Rings illustration a couple of weeks ago, I don't think we're fearful enough I don't think I am even though I handle these things every day now the context is really back to verse 18 to 29 about okay since God is like this how then should we respond and let me point out to you that's why we're here this morning we're here this morning to respond to the creator of the universe that's how we're here this morning. We're not here for anything else. Fellowship, is that great? Is that good? I'm there for, to be encouraged, Pastor. Wonderful. But that's not most fundamentally why you're here. I'm here, you know, so that I can be edified. Wonderful. But most fundamentally, you're here to worship the one true living God. And even, what about preaching? Well, that's a central act of Christian worship as we understand it. And so we show gratitude for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. How? It's very simple. By offering God acceptable worship in reverence and in awe. And there's a lot in there. You say, well, we could, well, we can unpack this and, like, you know, go to Starbucks or something. We probably can't because it's probably closed. But, I mean, you get my drift. No, there's a lot in here. And it's something, I mean, out of all the sermons I think I preach in this series, and there have been dozens, we might need to hear this, we, the people of God, more than any other. Because I think we come with assumptions. We, we assume things about, we take things for granted. You know, your parents always tell you don't take things for granted. Like your parents don't take all this life for granted, and you do anyway, right, because you're young, and that's what you do. And I did too. I think as, as Christians who come to church every Sunday, maybe you've grown up in church like I did, we just take it for granted. Oh, yeah, we go to church, and we're there to worship. It's great. Glory, hallelujah. But we're not fearful enough. When I mean, you've gathered here this morning for something that is, at the same time, glorious and terrifying. It is equal parts an unfathomable privilege, but a dangerous privilege. Like Aslan, he's a lion. He's very dangerous. And yet he's good. And so it's worth it, right, to, to worship this one true God. It's a, an unfathomable privilege we have of coming here, but a dangerous privilege. And so why do I say dangerous? Well, we'll see in due time. So since this is true, how should we worship and why? That, that's it. That's the, that's the end game here. Two main points this morning. The first one is this. We must offer acceptable worship. Now the language here, don't miss the language. It's not just the word of God. It's the words of God, right? Every word inspired by His Holy Spirit. All of them profitable. 
It's the acceptable worship. If there's acceptable worship, if you tell your student, your teacher, you say, that's unacceptable, what does that mean? Well, it means something's acceptable. There's acceptable work. Well, if there's acceptable worship, then there is unacceptable worship. And you say, well, you know, we don't get everything right, but it's very important we get it right as much as we can, and you'll see why. There's a history of unacceptable worship showing that who God is, that He is a consuming fire. And it's the second part of that, right? We, we offer acceptable worship. Why? Because God's a consuming fire. And that's the frightening part. That's the, the Aslan. That's the lion part, right? He's the lion of Judah, the lamb of God, right? That's Jesus. But he's a lamb. He's meek and lowly, and he loves you, but he's also a lion. He's equal parts. Lion and lamb, right? And that, that's the God we serve. Jesus who's fully God, fully man. So when people don't worship God right, bad things happen. Evidence in the Bible, story of Nadab and Abihu. I'm just going to give you a couple of illustrations here. Leviticus chapter 10. You can, just, you can turn there, way back to the left, or you can listen. Because I'm going to read three verses here. He says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, Aaron, of course, the great high priest of the Old Testament worship, each took a censer and put fire on it. That's how they you know, lit the, the, the altar with the censer. They put fire on it. And laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Unauthorized meaning God didn't command it. And so they just said, hey, let's do this thing to God just to satisfy God, to sort of pacify Him. And here's what happens. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Let that just kind of marinate on you for a moment. They offered unacceptable worship, and what happens? God killed them. Well, that's very mean of God, right? That's, boy, how, how, <laughs> he must not be very good. No, this is how holy God is. This is how serious God takes his worship, this God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 3, then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. His other dad sees his sons killed, and he holds his peace because Moses said, I'll be, God's going to be glorified, whatever it takes. And we can take him seriously or not. And we'll bear the consequences for not taking him seriously. And that is my fear. Even those, uh, uh, among those of us who are reformed in our theology, we, just, we love that so much, we love that more than we love the God of that. And we just sort of, we take him, he's some domesticated kind of house cat. You know, we just, oh, we love him. He's wonderful. We kind of, you know, pet him a little bit on Sunday, and that's it. And yet God struck Nadab and Abihu dead for offering unacceptable worship. You say, well, you know, that's, that's the Old Testament. That's the Bible. So there's one picture. 2 Samuel 6, 1 to 9, the story of Uzzah. It's the story of Uzzah. Get this. This is when they're bringing the ark to Jerusalem. David's become king. They're going to bring the ark to worship to Jerusalem, right, to the, the, the central place of worship. And here's what happens. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from, uh, from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So God, God's presence is with the ark of the covenant, right? So they've got to bring, they're essentially bringing God to Jerusalem to worship. And they carried the ark of God on a new car and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. 
people. So, so far, so good. The Ark of the Covenant's on a wagon, you know, and a wooden wagon, wooden wheels, kind of like in Bonanza or something, you know. They're, they're pulling this thing, and all is well so far. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord. They're happy, they're joyful, worshiping with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and catnets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and to take hold of it. For the oxen stumbled, and the anger of God was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down right there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. He just stumbled, right? The ark, God, I mean, the but now the command's not to touch the Ark of the Covenant, right? Without the poles, without we don't touch the things of God because we're He's a pure eyes and to look upon sin, so we're not to touch even that which represents God in the way He's not prescribed. So Uzzah touches it and he's 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 killed. And David, verse eight, David was angry. <laughs> what are you doing, God? Because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and from that place, and that place is now called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? You say, Why did that happen? That's crazy. Does that mean the Bible's full of errors? Is there some other understanding here? I think it's actually kind of simple. The holiness of God. The, the, the mud, <laughs> the mud, it would have been better for the mud, because God is so holy, to get on the Ark of the Covenant than for an unclean, an unclean person to disobey God in worship. Because that's how holy God is and how sinful we are. Now, this doesn't happen, it hasn't happened lately today, <laughs> but this is the same God we worship, Right? It was better for the ark to fall. And you say, well, no, he meant well. And see, that's just it. We come to worship God. We introduce all these novel elements into the worship of God. And we mean well, right? Uzzah meant well, and he was killed. He didn't take the holiness of God serious enough. But he meant well. And we come to worship God some other way than what he's prescribed. And we mean well, and that's not acceptable. That is unacceptable worship, Right? So this is why I say this is terrifying, and we have to be really, really careful when we come here. I mean, we're not, we're not killing animals and offering fire, thankfully, right? But we serve the same God. You see this in other places. In Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5, they lied to the Holy Spirit, bringing worship before God, lied about the content. God slayed both of them. You think of those who ate the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. This is why we fence the table. 1 Corinthians 11, 27. 30, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner is guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. That's how we fence the table and just not just a whosoever will may come. He said, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Have some people been killed because they took the, whole, the, the uh, Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? I think so. I don't have evidence that I can point to uh, because I don't know the cause of death. I'm not omniscient. But this should give us pause. We just come and take the Lord's Supper as if we're eating, you know, crackers and a Coke. And we take it without that level of seriousness. I want a church that's serious about worshiping God. And that's not to say we're a funeral home. Of course not. We're going to get to that. But joyfully worshiping this God. What greater joy can we have? That this God has said, yes, I'm holy, and yes, I'm terrifying, but I'm inviting you to come to worship me. He's invited us here today to worship him. 
So what is acceptable worship? Well, you see unacceptable worship, and there are, lot, there are others, other, other illustrations, but we've got to move on. John 4, 23 and 24, Jesus meets the woman at the well, and she says, well, I've you know, come here to worship. And he said, really? He said, actually, it's been transformed. It's not tied to a place anymore. God's looking for those to worship, to worship him, to worship in what? In spirit and in truth. That's it. I'm not going to read it, but that's what it says. To worship Him in spirit and truth. So we're here this morning. That's why I pray about this. We're here to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And what does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Worship here, spirit. That must be the Holy Spirit. And we do worship in the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what's going on here. It's a little s spirit here. Not speaking of the Holy Spirit. But the context tells us God is not to be worshipped as an image in a place. That's forbidden in the first two commandments, right? Uh, The uh, forbidding of, of images. And having no other gods before me, it's forbidden, right, to worship God with images. That's why I'm very hesitant about pictures of Jesus. I'm going to tell you, I didn't see, I don't watch some of the movies because I'm, I'm, I don't like that. Now, should you do that? Well, I think you have to make that, uh, that's, you have to be made up in your own mind, but I'm very wary of that. I think we have to be really careful with that. I'm not going to preach on that. That's all I'm going to say about that, but I think we have to be careful. We don't worship God as an image. That's forbidden. But God is a spirit. We are to offer spiritual worship. I mean, that's our worship. That is our worship. It's not tied to a particular place or earthly object, but to God alone, who is spirit. I mean, Jesus seems to be telling the woman at the well that worship is no longer hampered. It's no longer limited. You see, this is liberating, actually. Even as it's narrow, seeming, it's, it's liberating. It's not, it, it is not hampered by physical realities in particular places. Remember, you've not come to Mount Sinai, which was earthly, but you've come to Mount Zion, this mountain of grace, which is what? It's a spiritual kingdom. And so we worship him in spirit and in truth. It's spiritual worship. That's why I hate it. I say, people say, well, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not a Christian. Well, then you're not a spiritual person. The only spiritual people are those who are filled with the Spirit of God. There are no spiritual people. You may have some affinity with some, uh, you know, some kind of uh, um, religion or, you know, some... Uh, superstitions or whatever, but you're not spiritual. Only the people who are indwelt by the Spirit of God are spiritual, truly speaking. Or people say, I'm just not spiritual. That's right. I mean, John 4 is not speaking of the Holy Spirit. Worship is certainly by the Holy Spirit because only when the Holy Spirit is in us and among us can we offer genuine heart worship to God. That's what we're here to do this morning, right? And every Sunday, every Lord's Day. This isn't new. It's not like we're beginning something new here. We've got a new building coming. We want to start worshiping God the right way. <laughs> I hope we've been trying to worship God the right way for, you know, my six years almost as pastor. And before that, when the church was planted, I'm sure we have. I've tr- we've tried so worship is in spirit, worship is in truth. Jesus Christ will never be made known as to us except through the truth as found in Scripture. Only Jesus can do helpless sinners good. The Jesus of the Bible. Not the Jesus of the Watchtower Society or the Jesus of your imagination or the Jesus who's still all right with me, right? Not that Jesus. This Jesus Worship Him in truth. And, and the Bible defines, I mean, doctrine, theology, those are dirty words, but that, that just defines who He is, right? That's just how we define this Jesus. And it's very important. It's for lay people. It's not for seminary classrooms only or not even primarily, I would argue. Doctrine's for us. It's for the people. It's for you. It's not just for guys like me that teach it. It's for you. I teach it because it's practical. We need to know this Jesus. And and. So if worship is the byproduct of the knowledge of God, the God we know from the Bible, then worship must be rooted in what? 
in the truth in Scripture of how he reveals himself. Who better knows how God ought to be worshipped than God himself? Right? It's not me. I, I can't fabricate this and make it up. I, my worship would probably involve like baseball and, you know, a little of this and a little C.S. Lewis and, you know, some, uh, you know, country music. I don't know what it would look like. Well, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be this. Actually, it would probably look like me. I'd be, it'd, be, it'd be centered on me. So we worship in truth. This is why we read Scripture in our service every Sunday. People say, why do you do that? We're not wasting our time. We do it because this is the Word of the Lord. That's why I say this is the Word of the Lord. That's not superstition. I'm trying to bracket. This is the Word of the Lord. What I'm going to say is what I hope and pray is a faithful exposition, explanation of the Word of God, but that's the Word of the Lord. It's not just a superstition, something I like to say to be kind of groovy. You know, that's not groovy. But that's the word of the Lord, right? So we want to worship God of Scripture as He has revealed Himself. Worshiping God in any other way is the very essence of idolatry, I would argue. In the evangelical world, we are awash, brothers and sisters, in idolatry, almost in spite of ourselves. And this is why we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Because we are commanded to in Scripture. It's why we don't do other things, why we don't have interpretative dance, which is really weird, I think, anyway. Who's doing the interpreting? I saw that once in my home church, and it was done poorly, of course. We're evangelicals. We follow the trends, and we follow them poorly, right? So I say just listen to the real country music, don't listen to the Christian country. It's terrible, you know? Just, just cut right to the chase, you know? And that's not, that's not thus saith the Lord. Okay, that's, that's Paul just saying, which is sometimes so lie. Interpretative dance, we don't want to do that here. We're not going to do it. You're waiting for that, you'll be waiting for a long time. We don't do that here. We don't have pressure-packed altar calls. Why? I've been asked that many times. You don't give an altar call? No. Why not? I don't find it in the Bible. Do we give an invitation? Oh, every Sunday. The invitation is come. It's, it's always an invitation, every Sunday. If you want to come forward and talk to me, that's fine. I love that. That's great. Come forward and pray. i got no problem with that. But to say you've got to have that to save you, someone asked me, how are they going to get saved? Which I said, they're elect. How are we going to stop them? Right? I don't know. If we take the Bible seriously, right? So what's, you say, well, what about zeal? This seems to be just dead. You're just really trying to, you know, this is, uh, you're trying to quench zeal here and just uh, sort of surround yourself by a funeral home. We don't want to worship some boring guy. God is not boring. Did you, the Lewis, or the, uh, you know, Mr. Beaver, he's not being scary. I mean, the, the, the scariest roller coaster in the world, no one described it as boring, would they? The Grand Canyon, I told you last week how frightened I was there. Man, that wasn't boring. I wasn't bored when I was frightened. No, it's lively and joyful. We're not saying that, right? But certainly without truth, zeal quickly degenerates into idolatry. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they worship. With zeal, they come to our houses and they try to debate us and they talk to us and they give us their, they sell us now their literature, right? They have zeal, but not in accord with the truth. The Muslims, they worship the false god Allah with great zeal, but not in truth. Mormons, they worship a whole pantheon of gods in zeal. They're very zealous, but they don't worship in truth. This is why we're so obsessed with the Bible. I've been accused of being a bibliolater, whatever that was. No, we're just people of the book. I mean, Baptists, I hope we, I had someone tell me, boy, you Baptists are people of the book. Yeah, that's right. They, they thought this was a good thing, by the way. 
And it's not because we're Baptists. We're just, hopefully, it's because we're degenerate Christians. And there's nothing special about being a Baptist. We, we, we give that impression sometimes. But we know that deep down, right? And we love everybody who loves Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible. I mean, the highway to hell is paved with good intentions. To quote a good old 80s song, right? The, the highway to hell. Good intentions and zeal in worship. And good intentions of worshiping God, but not truth. I mean, it seems that worship in spirit and truth ultimately means that rendering such homage to God, our entire heart enters into the act of full harmony with the truth of God as revealed in His Word. That's how we sing songs that square with Scripture. They're full of Scripture, right? We want you to come and your hearts to be warmed by this. I don't want this to be just what you do on Sunday. No, no, no. I don't want that. I don't want you just to come to come so I could say you were here. You could say you were here. Uh, that's actually a very different problem. You're really better off staying at home if that's the case. God doesn't have, you know, the, he gives you a smiley face by your name and you've cleaned up your plate this day and did this and, you know, I mean, Lisa, she's done this and this and, boy, she's doing looking good here with all your works. No, 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 no. That's not what this is about. It's about worshiping God with reverence and awe, verse 28 tells us. I mean, authentic Christian worship is at the same time God-centered and gospel-focused with our entire hearts fully involved in this sacred act. It's a sacred act every Lord's Day. Because we're to worship, he says in verse 28, in reverence and in awe. Although Christ has granted us unusual privileges, we must be aware of God's awesomeness and His holiness. We've lost the meaning of the term awesome. The Puritans meant something very different than we say that cheeseburger is awesome. I say this all the time. Right, But this means to be struck with awe and wonder at the God who made us, the God who sustains us every day, the God who sent His Son to die in our place. To be struck with awe. Are you struck with awe? Or you just kind of come to Him with what one teacher calls a greasy familiarity. God is my homeboy. Jesus is my homeboy, right? Jesus is not my homeboy. Because we come to Him worshiping Him with reverence and awe. Remember I talked about a couple weeks ago, the Grand Canyon, the F5 tornado I saw a few years ago, and I was just dazzled. And I was dazzled because I am, I am created to be dazzled. You are hardwired for worship, and you will worship something. The question is, what are you going to worship? Is it going to be you? It'll probably be you, if it's not the God of Scripture, or at least a God fashioned in your image, this golden idol. But you're made to be dazzled. I, I, I knew this. Every time I'd see Michael Jordan dunk from like the top of the key, I'd say, I'm dazzled. Or Herschel Walker, God love Herschel Walker. You'd see him run 80 yards for a touchdown against an SEC opponent. Man, I was dazzled by that, you know? Dazzled. My heart, I'm made to be dazzled, and you're made to be dazzled. But here's the problem. You're far too easily dazzled. Because my temptation is just to stop at Michael Jordan and to stop at Herschel Walker and to stop at the Grand Canyon and the Hurricane that's my temptation to stop at that and realize, fail to realize that that glory has pointer glory. It points to something far greater than itself. It was designed, the thing that dazzles us is to, the purpose is to point us to the thing that will dazzle us more than anything else by a million to one. Are you far too easily dazzled? And there's nothing wrong with being dazzled by Herschel Walker, by the way, or things like that, or your favorite, whatever. God made them, God made them. I mean, see God's glory in that. That's great. That's what I, I'm not setting up a form of legalism. You know me better than that. But do you look at that and say, praise God, 
for my favorite athlete and how he honors God with his gifts. Do you look at your gifts that way? God, you've given this gift. It may be for accounting. It may be for math. (laughs) Boy, we need you here. And I'm thankful for the three or four of you that are good at that. It may be sports. It may be hitting a baseball. It might be playing an instrument. It might be just being an encourager. Who knows? 10,000 gifts. But they're meant to point to the Creator. They, they're not meant to dazzle you ultimately, right? But to, to point to you the one who is dazzling beyond all else. So we worship with reverence and awe, godly fear. Why? And this is my second point. Because God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. What does this mean? And here comes the serious part, okay? Well, stay with me here. We're far too easily dazzled. We need to be dazzled by this God because He's a consuming fire. Which, what does that mean? It means several things, two things at least. One is this. He is a God who is wrathful against sin. We've seen this in how God deals with unacceptable worship, sinful worship. How does God deal with it? It's not pretty. Right? He's wrathful against sin. Deuteronomy 4.24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And yet Christ has called us to come into His presence, to worship. This morning, and we come... Through a mediator. This is why we have a mediator, right? We have Jesus. We come to the Father through the Son. This is very important. This is why Jesus came to buy us back and to bring us into his presence. That's why he's the great high priest, the central, probably, theme of the book of Hebrews. If you've slept until now, well, here's a good place to wake up. This great high priest, he brings us into the presence because he's a consuming fire. If you go into his presence, you're going to be consumed by the fire because he's so holy. He's a pure eyes to even look upon sin and your sin and my sin. So we don't play games with sin in our lives. We're coming to the Father through Christ the Son, through this mediator who ever lives to pray for right now. He's praying for you. If you're in Christ, he's praying for you right now. And you are being kept by his grace because Jesus, in part, in part because Jesus is praying for you right now, this mediator. Because that's the only way we can come to him. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. You ever wonder why we pray in Jesus' name? Well, that's it. We come not on our own merits. We come on the merits of his blood. We come on the merits of the cross of Christ and his death and resurrection. I plead his merits. His blood pleads for me, and I come through him, Father, not because of Jeff. Jeff will just be consumed by the fire because he's wrathful against sin. Recall in Exodus 19, Moses was a mediator between God and the, the, the people. He went up. He did what? He went up and he said, they said, tell God to stop speaking. They were about to be vaporized. And God they said, no, no, me. Moses went up and talked to God. And even then he wanted to see God. And God hit him in the cleft of the rock and passed by and said, I'll let you see the back of me, not the front of me. He hit him in the cleft of the rock because he could not take it. I'm always amused at these televangelists who, in those contexts of taking up a love offering, you know, tell you some story about how they saw God. And the more, you know, this one teacher, he said, I saw God this morning. I was shaving. And he sits down on the bathtub behind me and says, hey, and he yields his name. Hey, John, let's use this John. And we know that's not God. Someone may have sat down behind him, but it wasn't God. <laughs> it wasn't God. Why? Because we couldn't stand it. We couldn't take it. You know, that's why we have to be, watch, we have to be careful being this, this so familiar with Jesus being our homeboy and things like that, right? Nahum 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Who are his enemies? Well, anyone who fails to trust in his son, the mediator. 
That's who his enemies are. Is there a sense in which Jesus loves everyone? Yes. And calls you to come? Yes. It's universal. But there's also a sense in which the Bible speaks, it's very complex here. There's about five ways God speaks about his love in Scripture. And, and yes, God is, all, he is he's wrathful at sin and sinners every single day. That's why I always tell you, God is your biggest problem if you're outside of Christ. This God. Because you're going to have to do, you're going to have to come to grips with him at the end of time. At the end of your life. And will it be with the mediator pleading for you or will it be you pleading for you? That's what we have to ask ourselves. God will visit his justice. We read back in Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, all those who reject him. So God is, he is transcendent. You say, that's a frightening God. Transcendent, in other words, he is entirely other. But that's not everything we learn in Scripture about God, is it? He's far from us. He's not like us. But he's also imminent, meaning he is like us in some ways. We share some of his attributes, and he is intimately involved in the details of our lives. Yes, he's holy, and he's frightening, and we're not frightened enough. But he's also a God of love who draws near to us and says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He's that God, too. And because of Jesus, we can relate to him. And we have no fear, do we? The perfect love casts out fear. We don't have to fear. Now, I want you to fear him in the sense of his holiness, but we don't have to fear like slaves because we're sons and daughters who are adopted into his family. He's transcendent, and that's what I want us to regain. I think we've got the eminence thing down <laughs> in our culture, but it's the transcendence. It's the God who's the Grand Canyon, the F5 tornado, a billion times a billion more glorious and awe-inspiring than any of those things. But those things point to him. So how do we worship him? He's a holy God. He's imminent. He's, he is a holy God. That's the second thing about him we learn here. He's wrathful against sin. He's a holy God. He's separate. He's other. But he's also imminent as well. So the lesson for us is we have to be careful how to worship God. And historically, there's two views of how we worship God, basically. I don't know if there is anymore. Now there's kind of a we don't know and we don't care view. Sort of a I don't know. It's not really a view. But there's the, what we call the normative principle. And that says basically that anything not forbidden in Scripture, we may use to worship God. If it's not forbidden, we can use it in worship. And that's one view. Martin Luther held that view. And I love Martin Luther and have great respect for him. The other view is the regulative principle. You have the normative principle, regulative principle. And it essentially says Scripture regulates worship. What God includes in the Bible, the elements, and how we're to worship Him, that's how we're to worship and in no other way. And that's what we believe here at Christ Fellowship. Normative principle, great, but God knows how he wants to be worshipped, and he tells us, and I believe we're only free to use those elements that are prescribed by, that are taught by precept or example in Scripture. That's how we do what we do. Our elders, they agree with that. Second London Confession, which is a, uh, a, a confession that our, uh, our Confession of Faith, the Abstract of Principles, is derived from. It says, the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and does good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. And here we go. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, by God, and so limited by his own revealed will. That's the scriptures. So that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men, 
nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations, that's the first and second commandments, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. We have everything we need right here, I believe. And so we're not going to have interpretative dance because nowhere does the Bible say, hey, you need to you know, get up there and dance around and do interpretative dance. We're not going to do that. Or one church that I preached in one time, they had a clown ministry, and they clowned around on Sunday morning. They'd come in, they'd drive these little cars down the aisle. They didn't do this while I was there. I would have probably had a stroke and died right there uh, in front of them. I don't think I would have survived that at all. And at least it had to help me out of there. Uh, but uh, they, they let me know they do that, and this is what we do, and, and uh, I, we don't do that here. As I like to joke in my house, I'm the only clown in this place. <laughs> and so that, that, that's the way it goes, okay, here at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. I see no reason to worship God any other way other than that he is prescribed, right? So we hold to the regulated principle. So what does this entail? Well, that's great. What does it mean? Well, just a few things here as we, uh, as we get ready to close here in a few minutes. Worship must be God-centered. It's not a 50-50 proposition like we focus on me a while and you a while. You know, he loves me, he loves me not. It's like, it's me, it's you, it's me, it's you. No, no, no. We focus entirely on God. We come to shut ourselves out of our minds. We see ourselves... We understand ourselves as sinners desperately in need of God's grace. We come here God, in, in, in God's mercy. We seek His grace, but we worship Him, not ourselves. That's why we don't do interpretative dance or ride around little bitty cars with big blue shoes on. Ever. Never, ever, ever. Do I think that was a sin? I do. Do I think that church will, bear, will on some level bear the wrath of God? or something? I do. I'm sorry, but I do. I'm, those people, I'm sure, are very nice and they're very zealous, but that's just wrong. It's wrong. So worship must be God-centered. It must be Word-centered because the Spirit works to convict and transform through God's Word. This is God's chosen instrument of transformation. The Word and the Bird, as we sometimes say at Southern. The Spirit and the Word. That's it. That's all we got. And that's all we need. Worship must be holy. It must be holy. Worship is holy by its very nature. It is sacred and holy, an act that is empowered by the Spirit, directed to a holy God. Worship comes from the heart that has been sanctified by the truth, is being transformed. It takes place when God meets His people in their cultural context and sanctifies them by the truth that they may move into the presence of God who dwells in heavenly places. As worshipers ascend to the throne of God, the baggage of this world must be left behind. The church must be very different. We want to look very different. Not self-righteous, not holier than thou. I don't mean that. Not weird. You know how I feel about weird. And I know I'm weird, but hey, we don't be intentionally weird, right? There's some weird churches out there. And we can probably, some people probably think we're weird. I, I don't think, I mean winsome and joyful. No, those things aren't weird, are they? I hope that's us. That's who we need to be. But worship comes and God meets with us. That's what on Sunday morning. We leave the baggage behind. We owe our allegiance and our obedience to God. Psalm 66, 17, 19 says, I cried to him, the psalmist says, with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished my sin in my heart, listen to this, if I'd come into worship, I cherished my sin in my heart more than God, the Lord would not have listened. We wonder why our prayers aren't heard. Maybe it's because of indwelling sin, sin we've not confessed or we're just participating gladly in. I know that can be me. That can be all of us. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. So it must be holy. It must be holy in practice. God does not receive the praises of men. That text tells us when we harbor sin in our hearts. 
Those who seek to worship must first acknowledge and confess and repent of their sins before they can lift up praise to God. We must come here on Sunday morning with our hearts prepared to worship. Come here. We don't just run in off the street and go, boy, I'm glad the morning's over with. I'm just this. No, no, no. We need to quiet ourselves before God and, and prepare our hearts to worship Him. I, this is the hardest part of my task every week. Writing the sermon takes a lot of time, but it's not that hard. I don't think what's hard is getting my heart ready. This morning, it was one of the hardest mornings I've had in a long time. Because that's just as important. If I get up here and give you a lecture, then it's just a lecture. And we'll go, we'll all go, you know, to lunch and we'll forget about it. And you should if it's just a lecture. We come with our hearts prepared because worship must be holy in practice. That's why we take time in our service to confess our sins before God corporately and individually. It must be holy in outward form and expression. We're called to worship in the beauty of holiness as God's church. If the outward form of worship does not matter, why did God tell Moses, take your feet off? Or take your shoes off, not your feet off. Take off your shoes. This is holy ground of the burning bush. If the form doesn't matter, why do you say, just come on in, man. Keep your Nikes on, brother. Give me a bump. We're good here. Now, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Now, this carpet that we lovingly remove French fries and things from on Sunday and try to get the lunchroom smell out on Sunday... This is not holy ground, is it? And so that's not what we mean, that now this is holy ground. No, it's holy ground because God is here. God is holy. The ground, we just use that as it's kind of an idiomatic expression, right? This is holy ground. We come into his presence to worship him with reverence and awe. So our, our, our form, our expression must be holy. I mean, it's a false premise to think that worship needs to be culturally contextualized to be more effective in reaching that culture. And I want to be clear about this and not. We believe in contextualization. But what is usually meant by contextualization is not making the gospel plain and easy to understand, which we must do, but making the gospel more appealing and attractive to society by integrating maybe secular sounding music or a hip and cool Jesus, a trendy fashions into worship. Because here's the logic. Here's the logic. The secular, the more secular the worship, the more society will worship. Because we're singing their tune, right? That's not what we're here for. Because here's the problem. The true, true worship will never be enjoyable to a secular culture. It'll never be secular enough. Because we're to be different. We're to be different. Again, not self-righteous, humble, humble. But God is holy. And we worship this God. Jeff Johnson said, holiness and worship need not equal the outdated and puritanical costumes of the past. He's saying, he's not saying we want it to be a funeral home. No, far from it. He says, we reject traditionalism and we reject traditionalism. But holiness also does not include the desire to mimic the pop culture of Hollywood and MTV, a culture that's so overtly associated with rebellion and ungodliness. Usually when we ask, where is the dividing line? Really what we're saying is, we want to see how close we can walk up to the line. Instead, we should reject the risque and the edgy and desire purity in every form of our worship. Worship must never be a casual affair. And he says what I said, Jesus is not your homeboy, but the sovereign Lord of glory. Is that who you're here to worship today? The sovereign, holy Lord of glory who sent his son to die for us, who is sovereign, who's sovereign in all the details of life down to the, 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 the atoms and the molecules and the subatomic particles. Is that the God you're here to worship? Because that's the God of Scripture. 
Well, worship must not focus on the physical. It's spiritual. John 4 says it must be orderly. God is not a God of confusion, Paul tells uh, the Corinthians, the 1 Corinthians 14, but a God of peace. And the context is governing tongues. He says, you've got to do it this way. If tongues, tongues was alive back then, if it's for today or not, you know, we differ on that. But back then, tongues were being spoken. He said, it has to be done in this really orderly way. If it's done any other way, it's out of bounds. Paul was very picky because God is not a God of confusion, but a God of order. That's why we have an order of worship. It's why we have a liturgy. We order worship. We don't come in and just say, who's got a song? And who's got, you want to come up here and dance? And so I want to play the banjo, the banjers we call it. You want to do that? Well, we might like that, but that's not what we do, is it? Because that would pretty soon descend into chaos. And you've seen that. I've seen that. Worship must follow the regulation of Scripture. It must include only those elements that the Bible prescribes, preaching of the Word, prayer, the ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Well, is that a straitjacket? No, those are just guts. Just the regular principle is not a straitjacket, it's guardrails. Well, what about contemporary music? And we have a guitar? That's not dealt with by the regular principle. Of course. All the things, the music God has made wonderful and delightful that is fit with the, the truths of Scripture that doesn't undermine it. Oh, yeah, well, that's not the question, right? That's a different question. Sometimes it comes down to taste. And we, some of us love old hymns. Some of us think that nothing good has been written after the 16th century, right? You say, what? Some of us love only the new hymns. You know, if it's written before the 20th century, then we think it's blasé and boring. But there were wonderful hymns written in the 16th century, and there were wonderful hymns being written today, and I love all of them. And we sing them here, right? That's not the question. Because I want you to hear me saying, well, Pastor Jeff got out there today and said, we just want to turn this into a funeral home and come there, and we just kind of say, yeah, we can't do much here. We just got to sing and, you know, do a, uh, preach and teach and all this. But no, it should be joyful. There's no excuse for us not being joyful in the presence of the Lord, right? He's God. He saved you. He met the deepest need of your heart. You've got nothing to worry about, right? There's nothing can touch you today. So come to Him and worship Him. In spirit and truth, I mean, the clown ministry could never touch the real worship. Right? That's nothing. You're just stopping at that. The dance, the interpretation, whatever it was I called it. Yeah, yeah you, no, that's just, no, we worship God. It's far greater than that, right? So does how we worship matter? It does. I think it's dangerous to separate how we worship from whom we worship. But there's a lot of things that fit worship, I think, right? Why? Well, because in Scripture, God's glory is closely associated with His holiness. God's glory is, distinguishes Him from all that exists. The Hebrew noun is kavod, which is usually translated glory. And it literally means weighty or heavy. And let me tell you something. You need something, beloved, heavy at the center of your life to hold it down. When the winds of change and the winds of, of affliction and the winds of aggravation are blowing into your life, you need something heavy at the center of your life. You need this God. You know, we hear that saying, man, that's heavy. That's it. You come to worship, go, man, that dude was heavy. That, that, that sermon is heavy. Oh, yeah. That's what we mean by that. God, it's heavy. That's literally what the Scripture tells us. It's weighty. It's heavy. It can't be moved. And so this raises an important question. If God is weighty and His name is heavy, the writer of Hebrews has told us here in chapter 12, God dwells in blinding majesty wrapped in a cloud of His glory is so powerful that no one could see His face and live. Even Moses feared for his life upon entering His presence. If He's a consuming fire, what does that mean for the way we worship Him today? We're no longer living under the shadow of the law. We know that, right? We've not come to a mountain of terror, but to Mount Zion, and that's all good news. But our God is consuming fire still. 
and yet we've come to the mountain of grace. And because we've come to the mountain of grace and this mediator, Scripture tells us to come boldly. We don't need to slink, you know, like an animal that's been beaten. We need to come boldly. Not giddily, not, you know, not in a worldly way, but come boldly. We come to worship him boldly into his presence. Confidence, not with glibness, but gladness, not a greasy familiarity. We cling to Jesus as our go-between instead of skipping giddily into God's presence. Directly one-on-one, face-to-face, because we have been reminded of his fearful and holy splendor. This is distinctly Christian worship. What I'm trying to describe to you imperfectly this morning, and uh, you know, we, we're almost done here. We could spend a lot more time on this, but this is what I think is, I believe Scripture teaches is distinctly Christian worship experience. The church is not the world, and it must look nothing like the world. Jesus said what? My kingdom is not of what? What? This? Are you asleep? Come on, guys. We're, I know, we're almost done here. My kingdom is not of this world because our God is not of this world. He made it, but he's not the same as it. You hear people say, well, I I don't like church because there's no life and it's way too heavy and overpowering. I don't think we hear this enough, but it's not heartfelt worship. Some of those accusations may be spot on. I mean, church A is dead like a funeral home. There are lots of dead churches out there. I just don't want us to be one. And I think this vision described here is glorious. And think of Isaiah. Isaiah 6, he was called and he saw the, the cherubim and God on his throne, throne high and lifted up. And he backed up and said, I'm a man of unclean lips, live among a people of unclean lips. He was called to go, but he was awestruck by this vision of God. And he realized, I'm a sinner. He stated it. He came into his presence, but he also stayed at a distance, right? That's how we're to come and worship him. But we draw near through Jesus. What the culture demands must never be considered normative. Never. God taking his glory seriously takes worship seriously as well. I hope we've seen that. When we come before the God in worship, there should be a holy reverence of him that is a consuming fire. Steve Lawson said this, Many worship services in our modern day church are intended to convey the very opposite. They purposely and intentionally remove any sense of the fear of God. To bring God down to a horizontal buddy who is there to come alongside and help in whatever I need. In the worship service itself, everything is casual, sleek, syrupy. What is needed is this tone to be recaptured in the worship service. We serve a God who is serious and heavy. And our worship should reflect that. Our hearts daily, as you worship Him in your homes daily and in your private devotions, does that reflect the heaviness of God or you just want to check a box? I think in our drive of fear and our drive to be relevant and in our misinterpretation of Paul's admonition to be all things to all people, I fear we've lost a sense of gravity, of gravitas, <laughs> and weightlessness. And the way, We've embraced weighty, weightlessness and we've lost the weightiness of the glory of God in our worship services. Why have we come here this morning? I close where we began. We've come here to worship the holy God in spirit and in truth. The living God. We're here for no other reason. You were made to be dazzled. You shouldn't be surprised at that. But are you far too easily dazzled? If you're lost, you don't know Jesus this morning, this is especially pertinent to you. 
Hebrews 10.31, just a few, a couple of chapters back, he said, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. The call to you is the call every Sunday, and the invitation is to repent and be reconciled to God. It's to come. Come to Jesus. Look to him. Look away from your own efforts. Look away from your righteousness. You have none to bring. Look to the one who is righteous. Repent of your sins and trust in him wholly for your forgiveness of your sins, your only hope of eternal life. Come. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And this morning we say, come. And if you don't know what it means to be a Christian and want to know more, you can talk to me. Or, or, or Well, I'm the only elder here this morning, but uh, many of our members are deacons. We, we have gospel people here. We want you to come. Run to Jesus. He said, come all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls, for his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Let's pray. Father, there's so much here, and I know I've packed it in, and I pray that that packing in has not diminished the weightiness of the word, the weightiness of these, these short phrases that are so full of truth. I pray, Father, that we would stop trying to domesticate God, and that we would give our hearts and our minds and our lives to being transformed in worshiping the God of Scripture because you are weighty. And I pray that we would learn to see glory in that weightiness. I pray that we would come to see that our, far, our hearts are far too easily dazzled. And God, if there be those who are lost here today, I pray that today would be the day that you look into their cold, dead hearts their darkened hearts and say, let there be light, and there's light. And they embrace that you're drawing the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And they live no longer for their own glory, but for yours. Oh God, do it now. And give us grace to worship you in spirit and truth now and in the week ahead. For your glory in Jesus' name, amen.